Well, good morning. Thanks for being here with us this morning. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Micah chapter 5. Uh, Micah chapter 5 is probably not a place you've spent a lot of time in your Bible, so if you need to know where it is, uh, Micah, Micah is a minor prophet. He's near the end of the Old Testament. If you're in Isaiah, uh, you need to go to the right. If you get all the way to Matthew, you've gone too far, turn around and come back. Uh, an easier guidance may be if you just grab one of these blue Bibles around the room. It's page 649 in this Bible. Well, uh, whether you know it by date or you saw it on the news yesterday, uh, you probably know that yesterday... December 7th marked the 78th anniversary of one of the most significant events in U.S. history, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor Day. Uh, and that uh, very day started the journey of the United States entering into World War II. In fact, two days later, uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared war on Japan and uh, the German Axis. And while most of us in the room weren't alive for that moment, I think many of us know what it feels like to enter a war. For many of us in the room, maybe uh, you don't remember that, but you remember when uh, the first troops were sent over to Vietnam. Uh, or maybe you remember the missiles being launched and the uh, air attacks being launched into Iraq during Desert Shield. Or uh, many of us remember that uh, day of September 11th, 2001, when we just had this impending feeling that that was going to lead to war. A war was coming. Well, two days after Pearl Harbor, uh, President Roosevelt took to the radio waves, as he often did, and he gave a speech to the nation. And in that speech, where he declared war, he said this, we are now in the midst of a war, not for conquest, not for vengeance, but for a world in which this nation and all that this nation represents will be safe for our children. And then he said this, and this is what I want to focus on this morning. He said, we are going to win the war, and we are going to win the peace that follows. And honestly, that's a feeling that most of us don't know. Because what, what it feels like to win the peace, we don't know what that feels like because honestly, most of the wars that have taken place in my lifetime haven't had a nice, clean ending. They haven't ended with a treaty and an agreement for peace. They haven't ended with our soldiers and sailors coming home victorious and our airmen coming home victorious. It, we, we long for that time when the fighting stops and there's a celebration because what happens nowadays is even after the fighting stops, there's this unrest that's underlying the moment and it just kind of lingers and it lasts. And so we can't imagine what it feels like to, to win a war, many of us, and we don't know what it's like, but some pictures from the end of World War II may give us an indication of what it feels like to win a war. We, we see images of people crowding into the streets and waving signs and banners and, and celebrating. In fact, the Daily Mirror in London reported that people were so delirious with joy that they hardly knew what to do with themselves. And according to Life magazine, Americans celebrated as if joy had been rationed and saved up since Sunday, December 7th, 1941. We you know, I think that same desire, that same longing for peace still resides inside all of us, right? We look at this world and we see that it's full of conflict and full of stress and full of strife. And don't you just sometimes think, gosh, I wish it wasn't like that. I wish this world was a place of peace. I wish my workplace was a place of peace. I wish my home was a place of peace. I wish my school was a place of peace, I wish it wasn't this way. And in our very lives, we long for the battle to be over and we long to win the peace that follows. Well, we're continuing today in our series called Waiting for Christmas. What we're talking about 
is how people, before the birth of Jesus, the people of God were waiting for this king. They were waiting for a savior. And I think that word waiting just captures something in all of us because we all know what it's like to wait, right? And we, especially parents, we know what it's like to wait. Dads, we know what it's like to wait, right? I have girls in my house and I have spent most of my life waiting on girls. And in fact, now it's gotten to the point where the waiting to leave the house isn't nearly as bad as the waiting to get out of the car when we get there. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you get to the place and you, the driver, whoever's driving, gets out of the car and is ready to go in the store and everybody else in the car, I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing something and they're not coming with me. And uh, I'm standing there like an idiot with my key. And they're like, no, just go in the store. I'm like, what are you doing in there? Just go in the store. I can't, I got to lock the door. I can't, I got to wait for you. You know, we know what it's like to wait, right? That waiting is a stressful time. We're all waiting for something. Well, the first, the, the people of God, before Jesus came, they were waiting for a king. They were waiting. And the Old Testament uh, tells the story of God and his people waiting for the birth of Jesus. And during this era known as the time of the kings, God would send prophets. And the prophets would come and give guidance and direction to his people, to the nation of Israel. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and the prophet we're going to talk about today, a man named Micah. Now, if you're new to church, you haven't been around your Bible very much, the word prophet may seem a little weird to you. You might think of a prophet as being somebody like this. Uh, Homer Simpson is one of my favorite prophets of all time. The end is near. Uh, but that's not what a prophet was. A prophet simply is a, uh, a messenger from God. It's a messenger that God sends with a message from God. And you would think that when the people of God hear the message of God from a messenger of God, they would do what God says. But what we find over and over and over again in the Old Testament is that the people would hear the message from God and then do the complete opposite of what God told them to do. Now, we don't know anything about that today, do we? We don't have any idea what that means. But in the old days, people would hear a message from God and they'd do the opposite of that. And so this prophet that we're going to talk about today, uh, Micah, is one of the ones who's going to bring this message from God. Now, here's what you need to know before we read this passage. The first three kings of Israel were three men named Saul and David and Solomon. Saul and David and Solomon uh, were kings over the entire kingdom of Israel. But after Solomon's reign, something happened, and the kingdom of Israel got divided in two. And so uh, split into two kingdoms. And eventually the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom, which was part of Israel but became known as Judah, a few, uh, some years later was conquered by the Babylonians. But we're right now, when Micah comes along, we're kind of in the middle of that. The northern kingdom has been conquered. And uh, in the middle of that chaos, Micah enters the picture. And he lived in the southern kingdom around 700 years before Christ or before that first Christmas. And he had seen the Northern kingdom fall and they fell because of their disobedience to God because they weren't listening to these messages from God. And he saw that the Southern kingdom, Judah, his home was on the same path. And though destruction was sure to come, God gave Micah a promise of peace. And we're gonna read that today, Micah chapter five. We're gonna start with verse one. Verse one says this. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So this is Micah's message from the Lord. Trouble is coming, right? The end is near. He says, I see that you're on the same path 
and somebody's coming to conquer, and they're going to strike Israel's leader. This is not a good prophecy, by the way. If you can't uh, read through the, between the lines there, this is a bad prophecy for Israel. But even in the midst of this bad prophecy, uh, Micah brings hope. He says this, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And of course, if you know the gospel account of the birth of Jesus, there's this census to be taken, and everybody has to travel to their hometown to be counted and to be taxed. And uh, Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem. And while they're there, pregnant Mary uh, ends up having her baby, and they give birth to a boy, and she names him Jesus. And that account from Luke chapter 2 happened 700 years after what Micah had predicted what Micah Micah prophesied 700 years later. So if you think about that, like it would be like today, if somebody somebody prophesied that in the year 2719, the president of the United States would be born in Tipton, right? So there's this small town. Uh, Bethlehem is a big city now. If you go to Israel, it's it's a thriving place. But back then it's a little town, a little town of Bethlehem. That's why we sing that, right? Uh, And so uh, that, that was a big, bold prediction, but it wasn't a prediction from Micah. It was a prediction from God given through Micah. And so that that account from Luke chapter 2 happened 700 years after this. Now, here's what Micah had to say about this ruler that was going to come 700 years later. Verse 3, he said, therefore, Israel will be abandoned until a time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And watch this, and this is the phrase I want to focus on today. And he will be our peace. Now, if you're reading the NIV translation, the blue Bible's around the room, or if you usually read from the NIV, uh, or maybe you've got another translation there, you may see that This last phrase, and he will be our peace, starts a new thought, a new idea. And it says uh, in many of those translations, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade and send their troops. And it goes on to talk about that. But what I found this week in doing some research is that actually some of the more literal word-for-word translations of the Bible, like the ESV and the NASB, have a period after that. And he will be our peace, period. And then the next thought starts. And that word peace there is really important. And and if you've been around church for a while, you probably know that that word peace isn't like we think of peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. And uh, it doesn't just mean an absence of conflict. It it means completeness or wholeness or soundness. There's this idea that everything is set right when we have shalom. In his book, A Look uh, Look at Advent Through the Old Testament, author Matt Woodley explains it this way. He says, in the Bible, God's peace, shalom, meant much more than simply the absence of war. Shalom meant not only inner peace or spiritual peace, it meant wholeness and completeness throughout all of creation. It meant the end of injustice. It meant the rich would no longer devour the poor. It meant all brokenness would be set right and healed. It meant that people would love one another. For the Jews, the hope of shalom was wrapped up in a person. Someone is coming, they believed, who will open the door to peace. And that's the promise that God made to Israel about this Jesus, about this ruler that was to come, the one that would bring shalom, that would bring wholeness or completeness or peace. But as you read the Gospels, what you find is that the people didn't really believe 
that Jesus was the one that was being spoken about. Uh, I mean, how could Jesus be the peace bringer that Micah wrote about? Uh, Conflict was still a very real part of their everyday lives. And in fact, um, while they were no longer under the thumb of the Babylonians at this time, they were still uh, being ruled by another people, the Romans. And the Roman soldiers walking around in their presence every day reminded them that they were not free that they didn't feel that wholeness or completeness, that shalom, because they were under the rule of a foreign government. And Jesus didn't even have an army. Like, how was he supposed to be the one to bring peace? How do you bring peace without there first being war? What the people of the day forgot is that the peace that God offers through Jesus goes way beyond the mere absence of conflict or the absence of war. That Jesus came to offer a deeper, more complete peace than that. And so what does that peace look like? What does it look like? to have peace at Christmas. What does it mean for us that uh, Jesus will be our peace? Well, there are three ways that I think Jesus can bring peace to us this season. And I've put those in your notes. If you've got the note page you wanna follow along, or if you've got the app, the Genesis Church app, you can follow along on there and write these down. But the first is this, Jesus offers us peace within. He gives us peace inside of us. I wonder if you've ever known anybody that you can tell has that sense of peace inside of them, that no matter what their circumstances are like around them, no matter what kind of environment they find themselves in, they just have that sense of peace and wholeness, like they understand that somehow everything's going to be okay. When when I was thinking about that this week, I thought of my friend Stacy. She was here in the first service. And Stacy, when she first came to Genesis, she had cancer. And when I met her, she was in the middle of her treatment and uh, she had her hair cut real short because of the chemotherapy. And every time I talked to Stacy, I said, hey, have you been to the doctor? What's the prognosis? And she goes, it doesn't matter. I know that Jesus has healed me. And I'm like, well, what? okay, yeah, but what does the doctor say? Like, I want to know. I want to know how to pray. And she said, it doesn't matter. God's, God's already told me he's going to heal me. She's having this ongoing conversation with God. And she would go to the grocery store. And she, of course, she's got hair that's buzzed shorter than mine. And uh, women would come up and say, oh, I love your haircut. And she'd go, oh, thanks. It's because I have cancer, but that's okay because Jesus healed me. And that was her, that's her story. That's what she would say. And I'm like, how do you have so much peace about this? Like, how do you understand it? And in fact, I remember one time she took a, had a trip to the doctor and the doctor said, well, he's, uh, the doc, she said, the doctor said, we're never gonna be able to have kids again, but I know we're gonna have another little girl. And their little girl, Faith, was here this morning with them. And um, I, it's like, how do you have that kind of peace within? Well, Stacy's having this ongoing conversation with God. She's doing what the apostle Paul told us in Philippians 4. He says, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the promise there is that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Now, we use that word a lot, but here's what it means. There is a peace of God that we can't possibly understand. Like it's bigger than we can understand. And we don't know how it works and we don't know how we get there. But here's what we do. When we present our requests to God and we don't, aren't anxious about them and we pray about them, there's this peace that comes over us. And it's bigger than we can understand. And it promises to guard your heart and mind in Jesus Christ. Now, Stacy understood that. She knew that her peace wasn't rooted in having an easy life or having a great marriage or having great kids or having lots of things, that, that her peace wasn't rooted in anything except her relationship with Jesus. Because when you have peace with God, Paul says, the Apostle Paul who wrote this says that peace will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And the, the world around you may be spinning out of control. Uh, but Stacy understood something that I think many of us miss. Uh, you know, Jesus told us in this world, you will have trouble. And so if you get surprised when you have trouble, you're probably not paying attention because Jesus said, that's going to happen. 
But he said, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And so we understand that someday, like there's going to be complete peace in the world, complete wholeness brought to the world. But in the meantime, Jesus promises to bring it to us within us uh, in the midst of the chaos and the trouble. It reminds me of this song that we sing from time to time here at Genesis. It goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When we have that peace within, when we lean on Jesus, when our trust is fully in him, uh, we've got that promise that he has overcome the world, that whatever's happening in the world, he's big enough to overcome it. And Jesus came to bring us peace within, but he also came to bring us peace with others. The second thing is he came to bring us peace with others. This is a really important aspect to peace because if we're not at peace with others around us, it can lead to us not having peace within, right? So we need to be at peace with others around us. It's important to our well-being. It's important to our sanity. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not an option. It is a requirement. We are asked, we are commanded to make peace with others. In fact, look at this uh, in Romans 12, 18. The apostle Paul writes, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So the sentence is a little strange because the commands at the end, the command for us as followers of Jesus is to live at peace with everyone. And I'm looking at this and I go, man, there are a lot of qualifiers in there, aren't there? There are a lot of escape clauses, right? If it is possible, but it's just not possible. It's just not possible. He's impossible. She's impossible. It's not going to happen. We use that excuse sometimes, don't we? If it is possible. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying just use the excuse that person is impossible. He says, if it is possible, which means he's, first of all, he's acknowledging it may not be possible. But what he's saying in that is that our very best efforts will sometimes be rejected. Like our best efforts to make peace with people will not always be accepted. And sometimes there's going to be a lack of peace, not because we didn't try, but because it's not possible. But then he adds to that. He says, as far as it depends on you. In other words, follower of Jesus, you have to do everything that you can do to live at peace with everyone. So don't begin by evaluating others or judging others. Don't begin by worrying about what their response is gonna be. The focus of the command to live at peace with others is on us. As far as it depends on you means that I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that I can pursue peace with others. I was preparing this message this week when I, I watched a movie and uh, I thought, uh, man, there is some great theology in this movie. It's called Home Alone. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, but when you think about living at peace with others, uh, there's this scene in there. If you guys have never seen the movie, uh, Kevin McAllister gets left at home. I, if I just spoiled the movie for you, you know, it's 30 years old. You should have watched it before now. Um, Kevin McAllister gets left at home, but, at, but before his parents leave, he's looking out the window and he sees this guy who we come to know as old man Marley. And his friends are telling him that Marley is the South Bend shovel slayer, right? Um, and uh, he thinks he's a killer. But then there's this scene where Kevin runs into Marley at church. And this video, is the quality is a little bad, so you're just going to have to get past that. But the message is really good. Take a look at this. I'll show you what happens. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. Came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come and hear her tonight. You have plans? No. I'm not welcome. At church? 
Oh, you're always welcome to church. I'm not welcome with my son. You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. I've always been afraid of our basement. It's dark, there's weird stuff down there, and it smells funny, that sort of thing. It's bothered me for years. The basements are like that. Then I made myself go down there to do some laundry, and I found out it's not so bad. All this time I've been worrying about it, but if you turn on the lights, it's no big deal. What's your point? My point is you should call your son. What if he won't talk to me? At least you'll know. Then you can stop worrying about it, and he won't have to be afraid anymore. I don't care how mad I was, I talked to my dad, especially around the holidays. I don't know. Just give it a shot, for your granddaughter anyway. I'm sure she misses you, and the presents. You better run along home where you belong. Let's stop right there. See the point though, right? As far as it depends on you. We're so worried about what somebody's going to say or what their reaction is going to be that we won't even make that step. We won't reach out. But the Apostle Paul says, if it is possible, as, far, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I'm going to give you just a couple practical suggestions of how uh, that can work. So uh, three things. Uh, first, you have to be quick. Like when you're addressing conflict, we need to address it early. Don't let it fester. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And some of you are angry a lot. <laughs> And sometimes it's about the same thing, but it's not always about the same thing. And if that's going to happen to you, if you're not going to let the sun go down while you're still angry, you are praying for the sun to stand still so that you can be angry as long as you want to be. And what Paul is saying is, hey, we've got to be quick to address conflict because the longer you let it go, the longer it festers. And when it goes uh, past the night and into the day, you build it up in your mind. How many of you have won arguments in your mind that you never had? in real life, right? Oh, just me. Yeah, okay. Um, we let that, let that fester, and then we end up having all these conversations, and then we put those, we like transfer those conversations onto the people that we're having the argument with in our head because we haven't actually had the conversation in real life, and we're letting it fester. And Paul says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. As best as you can, try to address that conflict in the day that it happens, right? We have to be quick about that. And the second thing is we have to be restrained, sometimes it seems like we have lost all restraint in our culture. If something happens, something is said, something that we disagree with, and we're triggered and we react. And this is true on both sides of the political aisle. It's true on both sides of controversial issues. But if we are going to experience peace with others, we have to find a better way. Christians, we have to find a better way. We, we, can't, we can't just keep shouting past the other person. Like, we've got to find a better way to do this. We need to lead the way on this. And James, I think the brother of Jesus, I think James gives us that better way. In James 1.19, it says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Let me ask, does that, does that describe you during your last conflict? You're quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. How could our conflict look different if that was our guidance, if that was our like owner's manual for how we handled conflict? The last conflict you had, just put it in your mind right now. How would it have been different if you like listened to understand instead of listening to respond? Don't we just sit there sometimes and we, we, we hear the words that the other person is saying, but we're, we're, we're so ready to 
put our two cents in. Like, like as soon as you're done talking, I'm going I'm to come, come after that because I'm listening to you, but I'm not really hearing what you're saying, right? What if we were quick to listen and, and slow to speak? Like, I, I wish Paul had just said, shut up, because I think that would be more helpful to me anyway. Uh, my wife has never gotten mad at me for something I didn't say. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's when you're not slow to speak that your mouth gets you in trouble. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and, and slow to become angry. You know, how, how might that conflict have been different if you didn't become angry, if you were slow to become angry? We've got to be restrained. And then the third thing is uh, we've got to be committed. And I don't mean be committed like you need to be committed to an institution. I mean, like, be committed to the process uh, of reconciliation. The, the psalmist says it this way. Psalm 34 says, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, peace isn't going to happen naturally. Like, this isn't something that's just going to be a natural byproduct of our conversations. We have to seek it and we have to pursue it. We have to be committed to the process. We've we got to constantly be searching for and bringing that peace that Jesus came to bring. And also, just to clarify, if you have any questions about this, that <clears throat> peace with others doesn't just mean peace with people we know. Like it means that through Christ, we can be agents of peace in the world, wherever our world may be, that we can be bringers of peace, that the purpose of having this peace that surpasses understanding isn't so we can hoard it for ourselves and feel good in our hearts about that fact that we have peace. It's so that we can be bringers of that to the whole world. Like we can take it wherever we go. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew 5, 9. He said, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know what the difference is between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, right? A peacekeeper is like someone who wants to quell the noise. Like, I don't really care what's going on underneath the surface as long as it's all quiet. Like, if you, when you think about peace, if you think about peace and quiet, that's a peacekeeper mindset, right? So shh, 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 shh. I don't want to hear it. I don't care if there's actually conflict happening, but just don't, let's don't, let's don't talk about it. Let's just, just, just smooth it over. That's a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is someone who is active at bringing peace, bringing shalom into a situation that we are called to be peacemakers. Uh, scholar and theologian N.T. Wright puts it brilliantly. He says, people who live in the resurrection in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, like those kind of people are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be peacemakers, people who look to carry the shalom of Jesus into every place and to every person until every person comes to know Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And that brings us to the third way that Jesus brings peace. He brings us peace within, he brings us peace with others, and finally, he brings us peace with God. And this is not something that you can earn on your own or that you can win on your own. You can't work hard enough, you can't do enough good, you can't be nice enough to earn peace with God. In fact, Romans 5, uh, the Bible says we were enemies of God. That if, that if you haven't made peace with God, you are actively an enemy of God. The Bible doesn't talk about uh, this battle that's happening as if, well, there are people who are on God's side, and then there are people who are enemies of God, and then there's this whole big group in the middle that are just watching this whole thing happen. That's not what the Bible talks about. They, there are Friends of God and enemies of God. And if you're not a friend of God, the Bible says you're an enemy of God. And it says about me, I was an enemy of God. Like if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you were an enemy, an enemy of God. But Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, therefore, we have been justified through faith. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Think about for the minute, that for a minute. Think about how often we miss grace and how important that word is to us. I, I think we overlook this idea of grace because we don't understand how much we need it. All of us. You know, that the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I'm not just talking to some people in the room today. Like if you're in this room, if there's air in your lungs and blood in your veins, you need grace. You need the grace of God. You, you, you either are or were an enemy of God. And we don't like to think like that, do we? I mean, we like to think that I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I, I, don't, I don't sin that much. I mean, I know a lot of people that are worse. I mean, if that's the scale that we operate on, it's pretty easy to go, I don't really need grace. It's not that big a deal. And God, God loves me anyway, so when I sin, what's the big deal? And we, we cheapen the grace of God by thinking that way, by thinking that sin's not a big deal. But your sin and my sin made us enemies of God. That's what the Bible says. We were enemies of God. But here's the new, good news. While we were still sinning, while we were still choosing to live as enemies of God, Christ died for us. He took the punishment that we deserve, that God's enemies deserve. Jesus on the cross took the punishment for God's enemies. And Paul talks about being justified through faith because that's how we access God's grace. It's through our faith. It's through our belief. It's not by doing good or being better. You can't earn it. It's only through faith in Christ that we are saved. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you are no longer counted as an enemy of God. In fact, Paul says we move from being an enemy of God to making peace with God. But that's how we make peace with him. It's a peace we don't deserve. It's a peace we can't earn. It's a peace, it's a peace that we desperately need. And we celebrate Christmas because Jesus came to give us that peace. He came so that we could have peace with God. He came to be our peace. I read this week a story about Hiro Onoda. Uh, Onoda was an intelligence officer who served in the Japanese army during World War II. And uh, in 1944, he was shipped off to the Philippines to fight. And in 1945, when the Japanese surrendered, he didn't come out of hiding uh, with a few of his fellow soldiers. And in October 1945, the Japanese army flew over this base or this place in the Philippines where he was hiding out and dropped leaflets that said that the army had surrendered. And in Onoda and the few soldiers he was with found them, but they thought they were a hoax. And so they went back into hiding for four years until 1949. Uh, when uh, one of his fellow soldiers walked out and surrendered to the Filipino authorities. And then in 1952, Anoda was still in hiding, and the uh, authorities dropped photos and letters from his family imploring him and his compatriots to surrender, but they decided it too was a trick. By 1972, all of his fellow soldiers had either surrendered or died, and Anoda was left alone in the mountains until finally, on March 8, 1974, Anoda surrendered. He became the last Japanese soldier to surrender from World War II, nearly 30 years after the war had ended and peace had taken over. And when he was captured, Onoda still had his sword, his functioning surface, surface rifle with 500 rounds of ammunition, a few hand grenades, and the dagger his mother had given him to kill himself if he ever surrendered. 30 years later, he was still fighting a war that was long over. You know, we're kind of like that, many of us. Some of you in this room today are fighting to win a peace that's already been won for you. 
We saw, sang a song earlier that said, hell and the grave are defeated. The war is over. The peace has already been won for you, but you're holding on to a grudge. You don't have peace with others because you're holding on to a grudge. You've been unwilling to apologize or unwilling to forgive. You're holding on to a conflict that's way in the past because you're not willing to surrender it to God. Some of you don't have peace within because you're feeling guilt or shame over something you did and it's, it's keeping you from having that peace within that Christ gave to bring us. And even though Jesus came to free you from that, you haven't given it up to him. You haven't surrendered it yet. And some of you in this room are still trying to earn favor with God. You're an enemy of God and you don't understand why things keep happening or your situation's so bad right now, but you don't have that peace because you haven't turned it over to the Prince of Peace. I want you to know today that there is a name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus. And that way back 700 years before he was born, God spoke to the prophet Micah and declared that there was one coming to the town of Bethlehem who would come and he would be our peace. And at Christmas, we celebrate that the Prince of Peace has come. Regardless of what trouble or chaos or mess you find yourself in, remember that Jesus promises that his gift of peace is gonna be different than any peace the world gives. It's, it's shalom, it, it's wholeness, it's completeness, it's, it's fullness in every sense of the word. May we be a people who experience his peace daily and who live to bring it to the rest of the world. Let's pray together. God, I for one am incredibly thankful this morning that while I was your enemy, you sent a soldier to die for me in the name of Jesus. I'm thankful that he is a name above every other name. Lord, I am thankful that he has power over everything, that he has power over darkness. You have put, the Bible says, all things under his feet. And Lord, I am thankful for that Jesus. I, want, I, I ask you to help me remember that when we celebrate Christmas, it's not just the, the lights and the gifts and the TV shows and the movies and the specials and the things that we celebrate. It's not even just being with family and friends, Lord, but it's the fact that you sent your son to die for us, to pay the price that we deserve. He died as an enemy of yours. He took the, the punishment that your enemies deserved so that we could have eternal life. God, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that he came to be our peace. Help us to remember that at Christmas time. In Jesus' name.